Well, hello there and welcome to the Weekend Podcast. Oliver Callan here after the first week of the brand new show. Thanks to everyone, of course, who sent in lovely messages and the well wishes as I joined the crumbling empire of RT in a permanent capacity. Thanks also, by the way, to those who sent in not-so-nice messages, reminding me that, of course, being cut down to size and getting a slap around the jowls is also important too. We love you all. So, what is in this podcast? Well, we've selected three of the best things we did this week for the catch-up. Kneecap, that's the Irish-language rapping trio from out of Belfast. This is where we began. Now, they're going to be massive. They premiered a semi-fictional movie about themselves. It's featuring Michael Fassbender, and that happened at the hugely important Sundance Film Festival, and they won the audience prize there just the other week. So, Hollywood sat up. Sony Pictures have bought the distribution rights to release the film in Ireland, the UK, even across America. It's a stunning, stunning success. But the controversial elements of their music act, the rapping about West Belfast and the youth culture there that references petrol bombs and the IRA, one of them performs in a tricolour balaclava and all of that. This has obviously angered members of the DUP. Ian Paisley Jr., he slammed the public funding that their film got and he added, have their families and schools failed to raise them with a sense of decency and respect? It certainly looks like it, he added. Well, we decided to find out and we spoke to Moira Onyanikunala, who was the teacher for one of the lads in kneecap and she was a staunch defender. In fact, so much so that she might have ruined their gritty street cred by saying what a nice bunch of lads they are. And after the chat, kneecap themselves got in touch and welcomed me to their inner circle so I've been recruited whether I like it or not because of that interview with their former teacher now after that we have a chat with Siobhan O'Donovan she's known as the booby therapist because she's the founder of Posture Fitting. It's a physiotherapy led service. She helps women how to properly support their breast weight using posture and bra fit. It was a really fascinating insight that you don't really hear very often and she says she's never met a woman in Ireland who comes to her looking for help. A single woman who is ever wearing the right sized bra. Incredible. So loads of women got in touch looking for advice and you can get more of that posturefittingphysio.com but listen to our chat with Siobhan O'Donovan and keep listening right to the end because brand new novelist Colin Barrett was in studio he was talking about his novel it's on isolation drug use and these amazing meticulously drawn characters in the west of Ireland his book Wild Houses it's all the talk in the bookish circles and in fact Sarah Jessica Parker posted on Instagram that she's reading the novel backstage in her dressing room at a play in London in the Savoy Theatre right now she has a major online book club so even before all of that he's going to be huge and we had a great chat with Colin Barrett about his hometown of Ballina and the empty spaces around the west of Ireland this is the sort of great writing that's in the story he says Gabe who's one of the drug dealers had a face like a vandalised church with eyes glinting deep in their sockets like smashed out windows what a description you kind of know exactly who you're dealing with in a drugs feud in country Ireland when you hear that sort of thing. I love this novel. Great things are coming and he was a really sound chap. So listen right to the end. We'll also have bonus material for you in our weekly podcast in future. So also subscribe to the show on your app, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and all the usual places, wherever you're listening to it right now. Thanks a million for your support, everyone. Listen on the wireless as well. RT Radio 1 after 9 o'clock till 10, Monday to Friday. Cheers and good luck. Kneecap, of course, is that trio. If you haven't heard of them, they they, they do amazing things for the Irish language uh, and they do it in a, in a satirical way, they say. It's confusing people, it's winding people up and so on. They're, they're a trio. They've just won, they were the first Irish language film to premiere at the Sundance Film Festival, which of course prestigious uh, indie film festival over there in America, Utah, and they won an audience prize there. So huge win for them, uh, the audience prize. And they've also been signed up for uh, by Sony Pictures so this is the all important thing you can win all the awards you want you can get all of the airtime in a film festival but it's when you actually get the distribution Sony Pictures Classics and they will release the film Kneecap uh, in cinemas across America and the world following the deal uh, the Kneecap members Mowgli Bap Mokara and DJ Provi as they style themselves uh, star alongside Michael Fassbender it's set in West Belfast in 2019 and it tells the origin story of the riotous and groundbreaking trio so they're having fun in it but they are a real trio and they do concerts and all of that sort of thing they have a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes from the film critics who got to see it uh, in the Sundance because very few people have seen this film The Hollywood Reporter said it was gleefully irreverent Screen Daily said the film is destined for cult status and just as ramshackle as any Blues Brothers or Spinal Tap was in its days huge praise coming from it the producer Trevor Burney 
was uh, saying that we've had the success of Game of Thrones and Derry Girls in the North and this is all about Indigenous film uh, production and is doing massive things. It's a breakout moment for Belfast, for the film community and paying tribute to everyone, all the success and they're delighted for everyone at home in Belfast. Here's Mowgli Bap who is in his casual sort of character. Is he being real? Is he sort of a send-up of himself at this stage? Here he was, not massively shocked at winning awards and getting distribution and all that. To be honest with you, I'm not overly surprised about getting an award. Um, I think like we started this in 2019, you put, put a lot of work into it, and it's a very original movie, a very funny movie. Um, we always knew that it was going to be something special, and the fact that we got this award just kind of solidifies that for us. So we're obviously honoured to get an award from Sundance but again we're not overly shocked Deadly Mowgli Bap there he's speaking to RT News after the big win now because it is the north and the, the band is called Kneecap if you haven't seen them you know one of them has a, a balaclava in the shape of a tricolour and they have been saying look it's a satirical take on life for young people especially in Belfast and it's going over some people's heads so it being the north of course you have the usual suspects coming out and hammering this they're complaining that Kneecap got one and a half million pounds worth of public funding and they're saying that it's it's promoting division this is this is coming from one of the Tory uh, Northern Ireland Secretary Theresa Villiers um, imagine accusing someone else of division when you're one of the Tories anyway that's the way they've come uh, Ian Paisley Jr Jr he's always good for a soundbite he's the GP MP for North Antrim and he says he's appalled that this film has received taxpayers money saying he would write to Secretary of State for Culture regarding the decision he's, he's accusing the group of rewriting and glorifying sectarian war of hate by the IRA but in particular he said have their families and schools who failed to raise them with a sense of decency and respect. It certainly looks like it, is what he says. Well, let's find out um, uh, 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 if that is indeed true from someone who actually has taught them. Uh, Anya Marie Nikonila, Nikonila, I believe it is. She's on the line. Anya Marie, good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Gia Gwilt, Kegel too. Very well, good. Neil Gwilt, Gum, so top Broner, I'm afraid. Canila, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, okay. You... Okay, well, it's very close. Thank you very much. Carcolor. But look, you're, you're a school teacher, you're Moonshore, and you knew at least two of the lads. There's only three of them in kneecap. I, I taught Mowgli Bap and Makara, yeah. um, so that's Liam Mogue and Nisha. Nisha O'Carolan. Nisha O'Carolan. And um, I taught them in Kalosh the first many mm. years ago. Not that many now. Uh, I, they're young enough I, lads, aren't they? Yeah, so. They are. It seems like a while ago. <laughs> okay. And I taught them French. And um, I would have to say they were two lovely lads. Right. I have to say that. Um, what Ian Paisley Jr. has said, he, he doesn't know the families and he doesn't know the teachers. So... Um, that never you stops know, them before, the old, uh, the old can, facts of the situation. Speak, I can speak for the school, Kalosh the First, and I can speak for, I know um, Nisha's family. I knew his mother, um, and she was one of the loveliest ladies you could ever meet. And mm-hmm. I know of his father, and they are a lovely, lovely family. I taught Nisha's older brother as well. And um, I didn't know Liam Oak's family as well, but I, I can definitely say they are they were very well brought up and very well taught in Colossal First because it's a great school. And promoting the Irish language, I mean, come on, the I Irish know. language at the Sundance Festival, come on. Yes. You know, that's that is really special for all us Gwailgori around the country. And um to be honest, if if you want to go and chat in Irish Go up to the Falls Road and go into the Culture Lawn and you can sit down there and have a cup of tea and speak in Irish any time of the day. It's the hot bed. it's really lovely. So they were, those boys were brought up with the Irish language mm-hmm. and they absolutely have a passion for it. And it is so lovely to see it being promoted around the world and um, people sitting up and and noticing it and singing in Irish. It's lovely. It really yeah. is. And they're the packing boys, them out as well, aren't they? They are selling tickets and they're going to sell way more after this and probably absolutely. well beyond Ireland. And I wish them every success and absolutely very proud of them. Very proud to have taught them. But um, definitely um, very, they, they, they very much deserve their success. And I mean, it's rap. Rap is controversial. It is satirical. Yeah. And I don't think people understand, you know. 
They're not getting so. it. I'm, I'm yeah. nearly, I'm nearly thinking here. Are you ruining their their street rep here? Some of it, I was like, afraid I might. <laughs> these are lovely lads. But, but I was afraid I might, but I have to tell the truth that I think they'll have a laugh. Polite, excellent marriage. manners, all the rest of it. Uh, and Anya, yeah. you mentioned the, their mum because the, their mum died when they were quite young, weren't they? Is this Nisha's family um, or Lee Moog? She died a few years ago. Aoife, yeah. yes, Aoife was from Dublin. And um, she worked in Radio Falcha in Belfast. And she was a huge, huge supporter of the Irish language. A beautiful lady, absolutely beautiful lady. She would be so, so proud of them. All her sons, three sons, are doing so well in their own rights. Really? On La Carbra, yeah. On La Carbra and Nisha in their own different areas. What do they do? 40 as well. I didn't teach Anla because he was gone from the school by the time I came, but I know that he um, had opened gyms. I think he was involved in, now I stand to be corrected, um, in opening gyms. They're big um, sports people, but they're they're huge successes. And Carbra may still be um, working with Tipperary Hurling Team. Oh, right. In in, um, fitness. May still be there. I know he was the last time I spoke to him. Yeah. No doubt we'll find and out. 51551, by the way, is the text. Yeah. And they're yeah, the kneecap they, brothers. Yeah. So yeah, far I, from I, being I the far from being the rampagers as they've been portrayed by the <laughs> by the GUP. Yeah. They're actually just incredibly hardworking, uh, successful people, like they're I said. Incredibly hardworking. Absolutely incredibly hardworking. And and I really do wish them great success and sure. It's great publicity as well. It's so, great, and it's know. not bad for Kolosta Fersta or Manskull Fersta, I think it's called now, is it? Or it, it was not. It, it was, was Manskull Fersta, and now it's Kolosta Fersta. And we we've a lot of people coming out of there, going into politics. But the one thing about Kolosta Fersta is the young people are so passionate about the Irish language. It's unbelievable. All the yeah. teachers, all the young people. It's it's incredible. And it's, it's fascinating that it's coming out of Belfast, isn't it? Almost stronger than, than anywhere else. Yeah. It, to me, it's quite natural because I, I lived, you know, for 17 years, I worked in that environment. And it was just part, part, so natural, a part of my day. And when I, when I um, back in Belfast and go into any shops, uh, more than likely, somebody would speak to me in Irish and I will have taught them. Yeah. And it's absolutely lovely. And they're so proud to speak in Irish. Proud enough yeah. there. And public money well spent. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you very much. Garmila Magav Galair. And Bear Bua to kneecap and so on. Email oliver at rte.ie. And you're very welcome back. Now, we promised to talk about boobs, breasts, knockers. Get the schoolyard skitters out of the way because we're going to talk to Siobhan O'Donovan who's live in our Cork studio. She's founder of Posture Fitting, former Ireland rugby international as well. Good morning to you, Siobhan O'Donovan. Good morning. And uh, you, are you known as the booby physio or is that some something that, is that a, a mine they're trying to make me step on? No, no, no. I am now known as the booby physio. I'm <laughs> proudly wearing it proudly. across my chest as we speak. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so tell us how you are known uh, or why you're known as the booby physio. So um, that kind of comes from the fact that in the last 10 years or so, I've been focusing my physio practice on the connection between posture and breasts and the fact that um, we as women have uh, an extra load that we have to deal with in terms of resisting gravity. Um, And I had spent, I've been a a physio now for over 30 years and spent a lot of time, you know, working with women um, and, and doing work with them to help them to strengthen Um, muscles and to be more mobile and to have less pain obviously and also because I've worked a lot with athletes as well to look at the the performance side how you can be better in in, in your sport Um, and kind of had an epiphany one day when I kind of realised that yeah we've got actually more more weight that we have to deal with in order to keep our torso that bit more upright and all of the benefits that that brings Um, so yeah since then I I, um, created a physiotherapy service which is called Posture Fitting um, and I've been offering that myself in Cork and then I decided it was too good of a secret to keep down here. Yes, so, for sure. So um, I now train other physios and have physios across the country and in England at the moment. Um, 
looking at going global. So if there's any physios listening anywhere around the world, please get in touch. Um, because this is something that has made a huge difference to the women and girls that I've worked with and that all my team have worked with. And who is coming into you looking for help and what are they asking for? Well, to be honest, Oliver, any woman or girl can have this done. So um, one of the things I suppose I came at it from the perspective of seeing my patients who would have come to me when they were injured, when they were in trouble, when they had pain right, or when something wasn't working well. Um, but it's very much something that we all should learn as girls. And, and once you have that concept of how to manage your own breast weight, then you're independent, you're empowered to be able to get on with living the best quality of life that you can and not end up with problems that then cause you to have to go to the doctor or have to go and see a physio or have to have massage. And I'm not trying to, you know, do any of those people out of work because obviously I'm one of them. Um, But at the same time, I think we have a we have a big onus as healthcare professionals to talk about prevention, and that's always been something that's been in my um, my toolbox. I'm always I've always been very keen on helping people to prevent themselves coming back to me with the same problem again, um, or ideally, if I can access them before that, not having the problem at all. So um, large breasts, particularly, it can be an embarrassing problem for some women, particularly if they want to get involved in sports. They, they kind of step away from sports in many ways because of it. Yeah, and that's been one of the things that, to be honest, you know, when I started this as a service, we're a very evidence-based profession. So I needed to be able to prove to my colleagues and to, to my patients, um, you know, that this was something that was valid and, uh, you know, had had a, a basis behind it that was fundamentally scientific. Um, so I've done a lot of research and a lot of reading into studies and things that have been done. And and yeah, I mean, it's very much opened my eyes to um, a, a problem very much hidden in plain sight, but also something that has caused women be, and girls behavioural changes that may not have necessarily been picked up as being because of their breasts. So, for example... There's a study done in the UK in 2014 of 250 women and 17% of those women were not active, not adhering to or complying or reaching minimum recommended standards of activity because of their breast weight. Now, that may have been because of pain. It may have been breast pain or it may have been shoulder, upper back, neck pain or and or embarrassment, as you just said, about excessive breast movement. And like when women, and and this isn't always large breasted, and this is something that I think, you know, it's really important for me to get across. Our breasts are heavy, regardless of whether we are the smallest that we think we are or not. They're still a weight and they are going to move and all breasts move and they move more when we exercise. So if we can minimise the amount of movement then uh, that in itself will encourage people to be more active because they're not going to be embarrassed and thinking that everybody's looking at them um, or just simply being too uncomfortable to move. Yeah, Uh, You believe most women are are wearing the wrong size bra? Um, I more than believe it, to be honest. Um, I've seen it. We've all seen it. The stats will tell you 80%. um, And so far in our experience, we haven't yet met a single woman wearing the right bra. Are you serious? Mm. Oh, everyone who comes into you, everyone so far, and and the all my one team. Too small, too big. Um, it varies. Uh, it it does vary. So there's a technique that has been used in the in the past, which uh, was used when there was no elastic. Um, which is now inaccurate because we now have elastic. Um, and sometimes that is the situation where women will come in and they have um, their, the band size is too big because they may have been somewhere and may have been measured that way. Or more often than not, uh, people just haven't been measured or fitted at all. Um, and they are just wearing something. I mean, I literally, before I started to do this, I just went into a department store and I bought something that covered me. I, and I was, I mean, at the time I was a PE teacher and I was a physio so uh, or I then went on to become a physio so I had a bit of background knowledge um, mm-hmm. but I didn't have any background knowledge about breasts so I had no concept of the fact that a bra was actually supposed to support me I just thought it was supposed to cover me yeah. um, and I'm not alone in that you know women don't know what they don't know The difference that it makes when, when they get the correct size bra 
Um, like So for us, and I mean, you said this earlier in the introduction, which I was really um, grateful for the fact that you said, for me, it's more than just the bra. Mm-hmm. So the bra is an external support. And in the same way as, you know, you put any external support onto a structure, um, that structure is going to be externally supported by it, but it's not necessarily going to be a sustainable situation. So an, the external support of a bra will absolutely change a person's breast position if it is the correct fit. Mm -hmm. What will then happen is the bra will stretch because the fabric in the bra will stretch. So then the breast tissue will will go into what I like to call dipped headlights again. If you have an internal assistance to that, which is where the postural side comes in, you have a much more sustainable situation Mm -hmm. because by being better supported, the muscles that are supporting you to stay better supported will get stronger. And those are not in the breast. Everybody thinks that the pecs support our breasts. They don't. The reason why we all go to dipped headlights is because we have no muscular support whatsoever on the front of our bodies. Um, And literally, we are being held in position by the skin. And the skin stretches. That's where the physio comes in. Yeah, that's where the the bit of it that we do, which is where we look at somebody's posture. And, you know, I can I, I and my team, we can change somebody's breast position relative to the floor by giving them postural cues. So if we do that, which is your internal and then they wear the optimally, optimally fitting bra, which is your external, put the two of those together. You've gone from dipped headlights to full beam to high beam. Yeah, OK. It's a, it's a lovely image, the dipped headlights, the full beam and so on. But it, it, makes, it makes a psychological difference as well, doesn't it? Massively, massively. And again, that's the other thing that I think has been a bit of an eye-opener for me. Um, so my focus as a physio has been about helping people to have better quality of life in terms of feeling well and in terms of moving well. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, traditionally within that field, we're not supposed to be focusing very much on aesthetics. Mm-hmm. But when a woman stands in front of the mirror and sees her waist again that she hasn't seen for years or that she hasn't missed because she hasn't known that she hasn't seen it for years. It's actually really, really empowering for them. Yes. And and that was the thing for me when I kind of started this journey first. Physically, I was fine because I was playing rugby at the time. So I wasn't, you know, in, well, it was a bit after that, but... Um, I wasn't I wasn't suffering, so I didn't notice a difference in the point of view of pain. But I certainly noticed a difference from a confidence perspective. Really? And I wow. was a scrum half, so I wasn't mm. I wasn't short on confidence, okay, to right. be fair. Yeah, yeah. Um but it yeah, massive difference. It just makes you feel like you can take on the world. And and you know, I talk to my patients about this all the time and they will see the difference in themselves. They kind of Without putting too, you know, too kind of drastic a point on it, you can see the difference in terms of them giving to gravity and basically being kind of not downtrodden, but looking kind of like the world is on top yeah. of them to literally being like, screw you, gravity. I am ready to take on the world. That's you the lift just give you it want, to me. isn't it? Yeah. And As it's literally, I mean, the puns are absolutely yeah, endless, yeah, but it is uplifting in ways that, you know, I, I just, I'm. It's, it's incredibly empowering both for us as physios to see that happening to women, but also to the women themselves. Empowering, enlightening, everything. Love it. Uh, this person is texting in the they have an upper back injury from a fracture a few years ago from a car accident. Uh, they're bigger boobed, wondering what she can do going forward. Um, well, you know, the easy answer is to say to get in touch because I, I have physios in, in various different places around the country. Okay. Um, uh, the, the approach that we are taking is unique. It's unique within physiotherapy and it's, it's unique within, um, I suppose, the lingerie world as well in that we're taking what you could get from a shop and we're taking what you can get from a physio and we're combining the two of those together. Um, but uh, it, it absolutely can make a difference. Uh, can you ask the physio, uh, this person, she's seven months pregnant at the moment. Boobs have gone from 34B to 36C at least. Every support bra I wear gives me a feeling like heartburn. Is there any brand she can recommend that offers support without being restrictive across the chest? 
So I'm going to answer that question by not answering that question right. because I'm going to say the bigger picture here is being fitted correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, so the B's and C cups are actually really nowhere near as common and as frequent as they appear to be. Uh, that's what I was buying. That's because that's what the shops were selling. Yeah. So in the reality, most of us are bigger cups than we realise. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, if we're not in the right fit, a bra's never going to feel comfortable. I mean, one of my goals and, and you know, this has happened is that women don't even know they're wearing a bra. So if you are one of those people who is desperate to take your bra off and you're constantly fiddling and twisting and pushing this here and lifting the strap and doing something else to it, then it's the wrong fit. It's so fit, yeah. to go back to your listener's question, um, my rather than me recommend a specific brand, I would say it's more about the fit and then once you've get once you've got your optimal fit then you have the choice of choosing from brands with an with the knowledge that you're going to be choosing correctly as opposed to relying on the brand to get it right for you uh, can you ask your physiotherapist if she can help older older women get the lift to front beam at least um, this, is the, this is the issue around the menopause, isn't there? That yeah. breast sizes actually increase. Yeah, very often. I mean, it's very individual. So uh, for some people, they don't increase, but very often they do. And um, also sometimes if women start on HRT, that can also, obviously because it's hormonal, that can affect breast size as well. Um, and yes, again, you know, I keep coming back to it's about having the knowledge. It's about having the awareness. It's about knowing what to do. And absolutely, yes, you can be. Uh, we it, it, it works for all ages, all life stages. And that would be a real boost, wouldn't it? What should be worn for aqua aerobics? I've noticed my breasts starting to sag. And that's great, a great question because one of the areas that really hasn't been catered for very well is swimwear. Um, and there you can now get swimwear that is um, cup um, focused in that, you know, it, it, it is a cup size as opposed to small, medium, large, extra large. Yeah. Um, so you can go into a lingerie store and buy cup size swimwear, which is definitely better than, uh, the, uh, than the options that we had before, which was literally just a piece of material just compressing us. Um, from a, the point of view of performance, performance sportswear, I think our swimwear is still an area that um, could be improved upon. But uh-huh. there, there is a little bit of an awareness starting with that now. Um, I would, you know, I have, in the absence of anything better, I have suggested to people to wear a well-fitting sports bra underneath their swimsuit. Um, obviously, that then is going to affect the... Uh, life of the sports bra because it's not expecting to be in a chlorinated mm. environment or to be in a salt environment if you're brave enough to be out in the sea. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that would be a recommendation that I make to people when there is no other option. Yeah. Um, so it's about making we the really, best. We really threw everything at you. <laughs> we tested on, on all these issues. What's the best way to get in touch, Siobhan Donovan? Posture fitting. Um, yeah, so our website is www.posturefittingphysio.com. Posturefittingphysio.com. Yes. Well, and I have to let you go. I'd love to have talked. Kind of we'll, we'll have a chat again about the Irish rugby experience because I think there's more to be done there. Maybe as we get into the Six Nations, uh, we just run out of time, I'm afraid. But at least we got those questions in from our listeners. Siobhan O'Donovan from Posture Fitting, thank you very much and good morning to you. Email oliver at rte.ie. All right, a drugs feud thriller. Uh, it's set in Mayo. It's as if the writers of The Wire made Breaking Bad in Ballina, something like that. Home of Joe Biden's ancestors. Now the setting for Colin Barrett's first novel is called Wild Houses. Good morning and welcome, Colin. Good morning, Oliver. Uh, did you come up with the term wild houses yourself? Because it feels like something I've heard of, but I can't kind of quite place. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. I've been asked that a few times. Did you? Did I invent this? Yeah. title or this term Wild Houses which appears in the book a couple of times and uh, the answer is I don't know I can't remember I feel like someone said it to me once you know mm. back in my adolescence at some point in Mayo but the people and, up uh, there in those wild houses something was described as a wild house yeah exactly so it's a it's a very um, wherever it came from it's a very resonant term I think yeah and uh it uh, it kind of as as happens. I wrote the book and I didn't have a title yet, but that 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 phrase had cropped up a couple of times in it, so that ended up being the title. And uh, it yeah, I but I can't I can't be sure I came up with it, and I, I certainly they, won't say I did. They say session gaffs, I think, in Dublin. Session gaff is a good example, and certainly that's that's the meaning of it. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a you know it's a house of with a certain notoriety attached to it. So in small small towns or whatever or anywhere, houses you know, of iniquities. 
a house of iniquity. (laughs) Where did the teenage drinking happen when you were growing up? Oh, my God. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, the teenage drinking. Yeah, there was a little bit of it. And uh, no, there'd be a little bit of it in houses if someone's parents were away. Or um, Mm -hmm. we were very sad, myself and my friends, because we I went to an all boys school and uh, God, when we would go for a little bit of uh, yeah drinking, teenage drinking at the weekends, we would go back to school. We'd gone to the school grounds, drink, (laughs) giving it away now. But um, you know, so that was that was as far as our imagination went when Friday night came round and we had procured a can or two. Uh, and we, where will we go? We'll go to the school grounds, yeah, and drink. So the Dubliners don't realise how privileged they were that they did have session gaffs and wild houses to go to. Yeah, but the country upbringing was was different, wasn't it? There wasn't. There was always a, you had to kind of well, the schoolyard now is unusual. That's that's very unusual. That's very sad. I think <laughs> um, there are cooler kids out there. I think uh, in the countryside, but. Um, uh, yeah, I mean that's sort of a theme of the book, you know. It's it's uh, it's set it's set in Ballina, in and around Ballina and stuff, and so I wanted to capture that sense of, uh, you know, there's a lot of teenage characters in it and a lot of young people, and um, that sort of sense of, um, uh, you know, what would you call it? You just sort of this sort of you can kind of go between the cracks of things, you know. There's lots of empty space out there. There's lots of there's the town, and then there's lots of, there's the wildness, there's the wilderness out around you, and houses. Play a very important role in the house. Dev, one of the main characters, lives lives alone. He's a young man in his twenties. He lives alone out out in in the middle of nowhere, basically. And uh, this is Dev. Dev, yeah, he's he's one of the main characters. And um, as you said, it's about a kidnapping. The book, and uh, so Dev is the house to whom the kidnapped teenage boy doll is brought. Um, and so we see events unfold from Dev's perspective. He kind of is an unwitting accomplice to this kidnapping. And uh, so I just wanted to capture that energy. I just wanted to feed that in, that sense of Dev, Dev lives out. He's not too far geographically from civilization, from Ballina, from, yeah. from the towns, but uh, emotionally and subjectively, I just remember this feeling as a kid driving around in the, the countryside, whether it's with your friends or just, you know, in an idle afternoon or whatever, or indeed with your parents, or whatever, just always seeming, may all seemed endless. You'd all see, you'd go around a corner and there'd be some house or some, you know, uh, feel they hadn't. It felt like you'd never seen before, encountered before. You know, right. so it was a strange sense of of, of openness. And so the empty a, space, the empty sure. space, and there can be a bit of menace with that, and a bit of you know. So so this is a very simple setup. A, 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 a young man is kidnapped. He's not brought very far, but he's brought out to this house in the middle of nowhere, and no one can find him. Um, is it hard to write about ho- your home place? Do you, do you sense yourself along the way? Um. My journey as a writer is very simple, which is I didn't become a real writer in my head anyway until I started writing about where I'm from. Mm-hmm. I, I've always written fiction. It's always been fictionalized. It is always made up. But until I started writing out of my own experiences, out of my formative experiences as a child and, and go, writing about the West and writing about the people I grew up among, my writing wasn't very substantial up until then. So it's absolutely key, yeah, to write about where I'm from. And uh, once once I started doing that, the writing the writing felt real and 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 had a weight to it. And um, I was of course always worried. What what held me back was how is everyone <laughs> going to take this scene yeah, yeah. where I'm from when they start reading these stories and now novels about yeah. I mean, there's some sensational stuff in there and and you know violence and and all that. But I um people have been very nice about the books uh, over the years in in Mayo and elsewhere, and they get it. They get what you're going at, and you're showing the place. I love where I'm from. Uh, I love my home. I love my hometown. I, I love my my county, and uh, I love where I'm from, and I love the people. And um, but I, you know, I've always tried to show them honestly. And it's just my, it's just my, you know, I'm writing out of my own experiences. I'm not an authority, but I want to show them in all their sort of rough, hewn beauty, the same as the landscape. And uh, thankfully, they have not chased me out of the place yet. Yeah. You love the place, but you're saying it's not. There's empty spaces. Not everything is perfect. That's a good rounded view. It's the most rounded view of Mayo. Well, you know, yeah. Heard. I mean, it is. There is an untamed element to it. As I say, there is a kind of wildness. It's a wilderness still. You know, we live in a very. Uh, you know, you think there's no wild places left, but uh, there still is. Yeah. Because nearly every character in this, they're stuck in a way. It, yeah. Is that how you see the West of Ireland? Not at all. I don't know how I see the West of Ireland. I, I suppose I, I was someone who grew up and left for college. You know, I haven't lived in Mayo. In I grew up there, but I haven't lived there in well over 20 years. Mm. And it's not an untypical anyone who grows up out in the countryside and inevitably a lot of people move away. Uh, and so all my all my writing has kind of been about the opposite. I, I write about people who, who maybe stay or people, you know, who have always been my age or whatever, or roughly my age and what 
their lives are like there, you know. And it's not it's not a judgmental thing or it's not saying, well, this is, I'm delighted I got away or anything like that. It's a, it's a lot more complicated. And, and when I left, I couldn't wait to leave. I was a restless teenager with pretensions and I wanted to go off and write my books um, in a cosmopolitan place like... Dublin <laughs> or, or wherever, but, um, or, you know, uh, London or somewhere, but uh, I never made it that far. But uh, when as soon as I left, I missed lots of it. And, you know, and, and as you get older, you really value what's there. And I love going back when I can. So I've always wanted to sort of get that love in there, but also also the difficulties and stuff. And so writing about stuckness, writing about characters, maybe it's me writing about a fate I was always worried I'd have, but I, I think I'm also writing about things I didn't get, things I missed, consolations and, and things that I that I didn't get because I left. Is that why people leave the fear that this is the life that you might have? That could be it, you know. Um, Which is fine for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more of a function of when you're youngish, you just want to get out and see new, the world, really. I mean, that's a very simple thing. It's hard to appreciate what you have there. It's uh, what's right in front of you because you grew up with it, you know. And, right. and, 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 and that's sort of like, there's several phrases to that end in the book, you know, the, the, the Dev and, um, you know, he, he doesn't see what's in front of him um, and, and a lot of the characters don't. So they are in, I mean, you know, it's about a kidnapping and it's it's at times a very intense story and, and whatnot. But um, hopefully there's a lot of, anyone who reads it will see that there is a there is a lot of, um, there's community in there and there's a lot of lost characters, but there are there is opportunities for them. Like Dev's struggle is he doesn't need to be alone. He's he's kind of removed himself from society after a family tragedy. But um, you know, there are people out there for him. Um if he's if he's willing to sort of extend himself and reach out. The two guys who come to his door, they're obviously involved in the drugs industry. Um explain the relationship because he's he's the tallest, isn't he? But he's He's not really scared of them. They they bring the kidnapped boy yeah. and they're using his house and he tiptoes around. But the, the, I I was struck by that kind of Irish relationship in some ways <laughs> that he, yeah. you know, that he's friends with them, but not friends. Yeah, it's a very, you know, it's dramatic. It's, it's very dramatically depicted here because there's, there's a drug deal and there's a kidnapping and all that. But absolutely what I wanted to capture was a feeling I had a lot when I grew up and I would be... Um, you know, when you go out in the countryside, you're just friends with whoever's around. So you'd often be friends with younger kids and older kids, you know. And so these hierarchies would naturally form. You know, you'd be, I'd be with my older cousins who I thought were impossibly glamorous and, and cool um, and reckless. And, um, you know, you wanted to emulate them. And the dynamics would often be very strange. I, I, they were your friends or they'd have a lot of time for you and tolerate you. But every so often they'd just pick on you or do something very casually cruel to you, you know. And it's a very just... Every child does it, you know. Um, so those, those sort of, um, I wanted to capture that dynamic. I mean, the whole plot is a, is a excuse in a sense to get Dev, who's this gentle giant, basically. He's, he, he wouldn't harm anybody, but he's, he's not really scared of the Ferdias. They're disreputable people. They're criminals. They're drug dealers. They would have very bad reputations around the town. But they're his cousins. And they actually, you know, they're not a threat to him. Um, but they also have this young fellow with them. So it's this sort of, they become this sort of family over for the course of the book, this, this four-man family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, and they're all kind of adolescent, really, you know, even though some of them are older. But, uh, and just exploring their dynamic, they have to stay together. Easy and, Cocoa uh, Pops. So they become, a, yeah, they become a kind of family. The oldest fella, Gabe, who's like the, the worst of them in a sense, but he's the de facto dad. And he has to like, you know, he's asking Dev, has he got any food for the weekend? And he's like, I'll have to go do a shop now. Uh, you know, so they've done the kidnapping and he has to go and get the sausages. So, you know, that's a, that's a dynamic. That, that d- domesticity that was going on in the background. Oh, I mean, if you, you know, it's about a drug deal. But if you if you go read it, there's about half a dozen scenes of, of, of these men cooking and cooking food uh, for themselves and all Watching that sort telly. of stuff. Yeah. Eating the Cocoa Pops. Yeah, uh, making lasagna. Uh, like, I, I really, it's a domestic novel. It really is like Dev, Dev is sort of, you know, he's, he's sort of, um, he's been living there on his own and now he has this family all of a sudden uh, for, the, for these three, three days that the novel's set over. So there's a lot of domestic scenes, a lot of cooking and cleaning in it if you, if you <laughs> give it a second read with <laughs> an eye to that. Than that. Uh, novels take a long time, they take an age, don't they, to brew and, and, oh, they do. and, and, and land. Yet the topic of this book could not be arriving at a better time. Drugs in small town Ireland. Is that a lucky land or is that very deliberate on your part? Um, it was in no way premeditated. Yeah, novels take a long time. I wrote the first a very first chapter of this, a very early version of it, maybe seven years ago, you know. So you can't possibly predict where, <laughs> what's going to be in the news or what's 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 a topic and what yeah. isn't. Um, I pity any novelist who try to capture those things because that by the time you've the book written, yeah. things have moved on. Past. So I have always just trying to, I've written about, you know, 
it's fiction, but I've written out of my own experiences and out of my own life and, and sort of out of out, out of experiences I've had. And, um, you know, it is a version of that. But the, the plot is the drug stuff. It's, it, it's a plot. It gives the novel an engine and it gives it it gives it a momentum. And but as I say, I mean, it, it is ultimately about these relations between people. And that's what I really, really wanted to focus on and, yeah. and the dynamic between the characters. So that's the main emphasis. And the drug thing is, is an element that there you can't say it's not a part of life for a lot of people. And um, but I wanted to look beyond headlines and black and white depictions of, you know, this is a novel about the people. It is. Yeah. Involved, yeah. Did you look into the, the drugs element and how it's affecting all those people? When you were researching? No, I mean, not really. I don't do any research. I just I just sort of went with, with my own, you know, I had the characters and I and I, uh, I went with what I thought roughly would be credible. But I mean, I don't know. I didn't do a lot of research in any sense uh, for it other than um, just having, yeah, drank a lot of bottles of Corona at a lot of houses over the years uh, <laughs> in the West. Yeah, I suppose what I'm getting at is that the drug use is extremely casual, isn't it, among these youngsters? Yeah, yeah. And that's where we are now in this country. I mean, yeah, I guess so. It can be like that. Uh, but as, as I said, I sort of, um, Dev, for example, he's the main character. And I, I, hope, I hope readers like him and understand him. You know, he's a character who has a lot of issues. He has a lot of mental health issues apart from anything else. Mm. Grief I, and loneliness. Grief, I mean, he's a very, he's a very, yeah, he's a very lonely person. He's in grief. And for a young men, that can be a hard thing to articulate. And he's, he's certainly trapped in it. But I was thinking about how if this was a real life story and you read about it in the newspaper, you'd be like, well, Dev was an accomplice. He was, they were letting, he was letting them keep, he was letting drug dealers keep a kid at his house. Yeah. So you'd, you'd write him off as just a total, well, he's good riddance to him if he goes to jail, great. But I show you, uh, I, I, I show you the whole, the whole book unfolds from his perspective or, along with Nikki, the other main character. And so I show you, in, like, hopefully, you know, readers can read it and he, bad things are happening in and around him and he's sort of complicit in it. But I show you, if, I show you where he is emotionally and where he is subjectively and where he is in his life. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I think fiction is really the only venue you can explore that sort of thing. And, you know, the news and the courts are, are for, for law and they're for, they're for events. But I can show you what it's like inside someone's head when even very terrible things are happening. Uh, the, the good writing of this, it doesn't, it can't change society often, but it does reveal bits of it, doesn't it? Is that what you're doing here? It's, it's fiction, but it's not imaginary. I mean, that's, I, I hope so. I mean, I hope people can read it and just, yeah, feel, I mean, all you want is, is to maybe feel empathy towards people. I mean, they're, that's the paradox. They're fictional people. They're not real. They're not yeah. real. They don't exist. But, you know, um, it might make you think about people in his circumstances or people in, in circumstances like Dev or Killian or even the, the Ferdia brothers, these sort of guys who'd be written off as villains in, in, in reality. But um, that's, yeah, that's what art affords. I mean, I, that's what I've always got from from reading books and and from from artists. I I feel like I'm connecting with someone else, the author who I don't know through made, made up characters. It's very strange, but we do love people. Have always enjoyed stories. Uh, the teenage boy who's he's kidnapped in, in and held in Dev's house. It's his brother that's living in the wild house, essentially, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, we should say there's no glamorizing of drugs going on here because the house he's in. It's, utter, it's an utterly miserable existence. It's not great now, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so Dahl's older brother Killian owes, owes money to people. He kind of was a kind of was a drug dealer, and uh, but he didn't keep it up. And um, so he's ended up, his, his is the wild house, and it's his mother calls it the wild house. She said, that man lives in a wild right, house. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But then Dahl corrects her and says, it's, it's not a wild house anymore. So um, it's a, it has a melancholy tinge, the, the title, and it's sort of, you know, it is about... It's about how the past, you know, um, just feeds into the present and uh, and weighs on people very heavily. Uh, Nikki then is the the strong female figure in this. T- tell us about Nikki. She seems to be the only one with a bit of sense and maybe a bit of hope as well. The only one with a bit of cop. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so she's yeah she's Dahl's girlfriend. She's seventeen years old and um, she's the other main character, I suppose. The the the, the novel goes from Dev's perspective and, and 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 Nikki's perspective. So the whole thing unfolds along, switching between their perspectives. And uh, Nikki is the opposite of Dev in some ways, but she's she's a lot like him too. But she's the opposite in that she's very in the world. She's out and about. She's very um, she's very resourceful. She, she her parents died when she was young, so she's very mature for her age. And and she sort of uh, yeah, she has sense and re- resourcefulness. Um, and she's kind of the only person that even notices Dal has gone missing. And um, I did have a reader come up to me. Uh, a few days ago and say, I love the book. And, you know, Nikki's a great character. She's such a wonderful together girl, you know, and she's, you know, 
she's going to make something of herself. But why is she going out with that fella? Because Dal is like, you know, he's just a very ordinary 16 year old fella. And he's a bit, you know, he's a bit of a mammy's boy and he's a bit hapless and he treats her a bit complacently. But um, he's a bit of a lump. So why why is Nikki, a great girl like Nikki, going out with this lump? And, you know, my only answer was, well, I was that lump when I was a teenage boy. And, you know, you know, um, you know, you'd meet some wonderful girl who'd uh, eventually see sense and move on from you. But, you know, it's, <laughs> well, it's, it's, a very, boyfriend. it's a very credible dynamic, you know, which is this sort of fellow who doesn't know what he has at all. And, uh, you know, really? this, you know, uh, fantastic girlfriend who never informed any barely notices. So I, I actually will will put that in the uh, as a plus that I successfully have created the d- dynamic of a lot of teenage relationships that people can maybe relate to. <laughs> okay. uh, Nikki has a car, which is very important, obviously, because... Oh, yeah. Is that a big metaphor for freedom out in the... Oh, the old... Well, you need one. You need Literally. one in the West. You know what I mean? Like, um, you do need one. And it absolutely, it's 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 absolutely a symbol of her, her agency. I mean, she's the only one who can drive. In, in the, She's not the only character who can drive, but uh, it, she plays a key role. She, she has to drive Doll around. He can't drive, much to his shame. And his mother can't either. So she has to... Chauffeur them round, as uh, Dahl's mother mm. Sheila says. So yeah, it's it's an important part of her character, and um, you know she, yeah, it was a fundamental part when I was growing up. If you got the car, you were, suddenly you had freedom, and you had agency, and you could go a whole other dimension of reality open up to you. They were like uh, the fanciest people in the town, though, weren't they? The ones with yeah, to be teenagers. friends. If you had a car, you yeah. know, you were going to be the most popular kid on the street, <laughs> you know. True. So that's that's a is is a shortcut to popularity. I tell you that much, yeah. So it was very important growing up. So my my English editor actually very you know very innocently asked. He said, "There's an awful lot of scenes of of Nikki driving around." <laughs> and uh, my my editor in, in America someone from a city, I presume. someone from the city, yeah. yeah. And and whereas my my editor, who's my American editor, but she she grew up in Cork. She was like, "Oh no." You need those scenes. You need those scenes. It's like oh, they're right. absolutely. If you grew up in a small town, you 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 just spent a lot of time in a car, you and your friends. That's they're all very important. So I yeah. think the Americans would understand it more, actually, wouldn't they? Because the Americans would too. But yeah, yeah, yeah. My 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 other Katie in, in in the states, she she had grown up in Cork, but she knew she knew, she knew. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think maybe Americans might might have an affinity too. I think but they, the, uh, they consider this, bus used to be for absolute down and outs. Uh, well, public, tra- America, I mean, public transport just yeah, I mean, isn't a thing in Mayo, never mind, you know, so even, <laughs> even if you if, if you are trying to do that, you know, it wouldn't be wouldn't be possible. So, um, yeah, so the car is very important in the book and it's very important to Nikki. Yeah. There's wild houses and then there's the houses in the town uh, for the misfortunes, aren't there? Then? And one of the there's a father in there. So mental health is obviously a big topic here. I suppose it is, yeah. I mean, again, I'm, I don't have any grand pronouncements on it. I'm just trying to, you know, honestly depict characters in their situations. Sure, and yeah. um, I suppose there's there's a sort of generational thing in the idea of inheriting, inheriting traumas, I suppose, is the phrase. But it's just, it's just, it's carrying, carrying things from, 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 from previous generations. And uh, so Dev's dad, how far, yeah. How far do you think people are carrying it? I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I think it can go, it can come back a long, it can come back a long way. I mean, you kind of, you grow up with your with your family or whatever, and you don't. I think it can take a long time to work out the impact of what what their impact their lives let on them becoming the people they were when you got to know them. Your parents are they're like a landscape, you know. They they seem endless when you're a small child. I'm talking about you know yeah. your your parents are there, and they're just there's no side to them. They seem totemic. They're 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 massive in your mind in your imagination. They're the most important people in the world. So I wanted to capture something that feeling. And people, these are all, most of my characters are, they're adolescents or they're, they're older devs, a grown man, he's in his 20s. But um, in many ways, I just wanted to try and capture that sort of, that once your parents go away in some sense, you're just a, you're still a kid no matter how old you get and, you know, you, you miss them and you want them. And that's that's in there. So Dev's, you know, Dev's dad has had a lot of psychiatric issues and then his mother just overmothered him basically to make up for it. And then once she died, he was left completely adrift, you know. So it's 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 the impact of all these decades before he was even born. Things that were set in motion before Dev were born have borne down on him as a, as a man, you know. Um, you're writing, there's someone even texting in. Great to hear Colin Barrett on the radio. Brilliant writer, says Peter. Uh, you've been winning praise for years now. Uh, you've all the big literary figures swooning. Does that, does that help? Or, or is it... Uh, it's great. It's very nice. Yeah. Uh, oh, look, it's lovely to get. And I've been very uh, happy with the reviews and everything because it's my third book, but it is a first novel. And it certainly felt like that writing it. There's a lot collections of, of short stories. Two, two collections of short stories, yeah. Young Skins and Homesickness. And, uh, but Wild Houses is the first novel and it felt very much like a first book writing it. You know, it, it took a lot of trial and error and a lot of hard work. So... I uh, I did all I could with it, and uh, no, the response has been great, and uh, I'm just very grateful for it. Right. It's not just lovey palaver then in the bookish world, where 
It's not at all. I mean, it's a funny system because you, you, you do get sent books and you try your best to read them and say, you know, then if you like them, you're going to give a, a bit of praise and all that. But I, listen, the Irish literary community is great. Um, I, I came up through it. I came up through magazines. My first my first publisher, the Sting and Fly Press, they run a, a literary journal and they made me as a writer. They're always looking for new writers, for new writing. So anyone who wants to write or is thinking about it, wherever you are, your agent station in life, um, the Sting and Fly magazine still runs and, and I got my break with them. And it's very important, isn't it, for writers? Yeah, and I, I, I found a community. I found met so many writers there. I, you know, uh, Kevin Barry was first published there. Sally Rooney got published there early on. That's how I met her. She grew up in Mayo as well, but I never, she's younger than me. I never met her until I was in Dublin at a Sting and Fly launch event years ago. So, and so many other writers of my, in and around my age and stuff. And and uh, the Irish literary community is a very supportive one. Um, I was, had an interview with an English journalist a couple of months back and he was like, you all seem to love each other over there, you know, and, you know, he's like, it's just, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any bitter rivalries or anything like elsewhere. So I was like, yeah, we all love each other, aren't we great? Yeah. It could be catty every now and again, though. <laughs> oh, listen, listen, there's no angels, there's no angels and everyone gets into the pub and has a drink or two. But I think in the main, you know, uh, no, coming up, as I say, coming up to that magazine and coming mm. up to, you just, you meet people, and they're, they're, yeah. they're your friends before they end up being uh, you know, the, before they get well, before they get books published and become authors, you know, that's really it's really good is, to so, hear because half yeah. the time you're wondering, can you believe the blurb at the back when, no, it, when no, it's a big no, author so, attached? Um, and it's always nice to, to to read something you haven't read before and, and just discover new work. So yeah. I'm always trying my best to keep it. There's so many writers in Ireland, so much good writing coming through. So, so the stinging fly is the place to to go. Yeah. Colm is welcome back in Mayo. We're so proud of him here. Says Austin, who's a Mayo librarian. Thank you, Austin. He's almost raising the prospect that you mightn't be. <laughs> just to clarify, I was always worried about back. it. I I was like, listen, Were you? I'm going to do the book, but if they, you know, if they run me, they run me. But uh, no, no, uh, people in Mayo have a very elevated literary sensibility, Oliver. So they, <laughs> they got what I was going for, you know. Yeah. Um, the Oprah Daily website, I don't know if you know about this, described you as a doyen of the sentence. I'm not sure what a doyen is. Yeah, I was going to ask you. I'm assuming it's a good thing. Think. Well, I don't know. I assume it's a good I, thing. Well, they're talking about, uh, is it an irritant for you to be praised for the mastery of the sentence, whereas I presume you want people to celebrate the story and the characters in it. Praise is never an irritant. Um, no, I, 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 I'm I, happy to take any, if people take any. I do work a lot on the sentences. I really do, Oliver. Yeah. And I think writing the novel, though, um, did make me realise that there's there really is a simple knack and people have it. The writing can, can take any shape or form, but to be able to tell a story and keep the pages turning, keep the reader turning the pages is, is a real knack. So... With the novel, yeah, as much as I put a lot of work and effort into sentences, but you have to make sure the story's there. So that was yeah. what I spent so long trying to f- make as good as I could. I, I meant to mention earlier, actually, Turlock's playing oh, yeah. a big part in this. Um, yes. I, I think that's, uh, I don't think I've, I've I've come across a Turlock as a plot, as a plot thing. Tell us where, no, how it so, features. I mean, basically a Turlock, for people who don't know, is like, it's kind of like a seasonal lake that'll spring up every so often. So yeah. you look out over a field and it looks like it's flooded and it'll be there for a while and then it's gone. And uh, it's a, you know, a, a, a geographical phenomenon that apparently only happens in the west of Ireland. Yeah, I think that's there's, incredible, there's isn't There's possibly it? a place in Wales, I could be wrong, where it also happens. I have the character mentioned it only happens in the West just for the poetic cleanness of it. Um, so, yeah, that's how Killy, that's how the trouble starts, because Killian, who is uh, minding a shipment of drugs, thinks he'll be really clever and he hides it out in the middle of nowhere and then it floods. So, as he says, a magical lake drank 18 grand's worth of coke on me. And uh, so that sets the whole thing in motion. Uh, so Turlock was, once I, once I, you know, I always knew I wanted to put them in a story or put them in a, a book at some point. Mm. So Wild Houses afforded the opportunity to bring in Great bring use in of it. It's yeah. what Breaking Bad was missing. For, you know, the <laughs> narcos ironic well, they don't have too. Turlocks in uh, New Mexico or whatever. <laughs> no, no, so that no. was the problem there, I suppose. Yeah. Listen, thanks a million for coming in to us. It's called Wild Houses. Um, you, you, you kind of come, you look like an intelligent version of Prince Harry Without all the baggage. For anyone. <laughs> okay. So enjoy the next few weeks. You've had, the, the reviews have been incredible. Thank you, Albert. So um, enjoy all of that. And also award season, I would say, at the end of the year. So look forward to that. You'll be there for sure. You don't have to comment on that. And, and come back to us for novel number two, because they all want they all want more from you. Wild Houses is published by Jonathan Cape. It is out now. Sup it in. You'll never think of a turlock the same way ever again. Or possibly Bellina. Uh, good luck, Colin Barr. Thanks, man. Good morning. Thank you, Albert.